Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Middle Earth Mixer. I'm your host, Evan Cooney, and I want to start off, first of all, by saying Happy New Year. Thank you for joining me. Today, we are going to be talking about the Eagles of Middle Earth. Now, originally, I was going to do a podcast on why the Fellowship couldn't take the Eagles to Mordor, but I had also wanted to do one on the Dragons of Middle Earth, so I figured I might as well just do an Eagle podcast, talk about the Eagles, where they came from, uh, what their nature is, why they couldn't have been taken in Mordor during the Lord of the Rings, and then I'll do a Dragons of Middle-Earth podcast afterwards. And I thought that that would be cool anyway, because Tolkien kind of meant for the eagles and the dragons of Middle-Earth to be foils of one another. So that would be a cool pair kind of back-to-back podcast to do. So without further ado, let's get right into it. All right, eagles of Middle-Earth. I want to answer where they come from, what their nature is, uh, what their capabilities are, and also towards the end, like I said, why the Fellowship couldn't take them to Mordor. Because I'm sick of hearing this question that has been thoroughly answered and debunked so many times, but for some reason, trolls and people who have the mind of a toddler won't let it go. All right, so who are the Eagles? The Eagles are a race of beings in Middle-earth that essentially their original inspiration was spirits, right? I have this quote that I'm going to read from the Silmarillion here. I'll try not to get too scholarly because, again, we want to keep it whimsical here at the Middle-earth Mixer. But if I crack open this part of the Silmarillion, hold on, I have it underlined. At the beginning of the Silmarillion, when Tolkien is getting into sort of the creation of the world, we are seeing Arda, or the Earth, at its earliest state. And we get a glimpse because we're, we are seeing the Tolkien is giving descriptions of all of the various Valar and their qualities and the realms that they have government over within Arda. Now, if you remember, the king of the Valar is Manwe. He is essentially Iluvatar, which is Tolkien's creator god's governor on Earth in the earth. He has authority over everything in the earth, and of course Melkor likes to challenge his authority. But we are getting a description of Manwe, king of the Valar, king of the earth, and the stuff that are qualities particular to him. And it says in the Silmarillion that spirits in the shape of hawks and eagles flew over to and from his halls, and their eyes could see to the depths of the seas and pierce the hidden caverns beneath the world. So we get this description of these spirits in the very beginning that took the shapes of birds that were direct servants to Manwe. And again, the implication here is that these are Maiar spirits that are taking the forms of birds in direct service to Manwe in Valinor. So that begs the question, since Manwe sends the eagles, and I I feel like maybe I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself here, but for some context, the eagles were sent to Middle-earth by Manwe, and they're not normal eagles, they are massive eagles, right? And they are sent to Middle-earth to keep watch 
over the Noldor. That is the group of elves that make up Galadriel, Feanor, Fingolfin. They are sent to Middle-earth to keep watch over the Noldor and report back on what they're doing and not only watch the Noldor, but also watch Melkor. Keep watch over all of the mischief that Melkor is trying to get into. So they are sent to Middle-earth. And going back to the eagle's nature... Right. Were these eagles that were sent to Middle-earth by Manwe to watch over the happenings and report back to him, did they have spirits? Now, originally... They did. Originally, the eagles, the great eagles, were meant to be Maiar, at least in the first age. And then Tolkien kind of went back and changed that because he didn't like the idea of these animal-like beings that are giving birth to descendants being members of the angelic hierarchy. So he changed that. So what we end up getting is Manway sends these blessed and super eagles, essentially. These eagles that have qualities of speech. They are sentient. They can reason. They are essentially their own race, but they don't have souls that are going to bring them into the afterlife like men and elves have. And what that's referred to in Tolkien's legendarium as a, a fea, right? They don't have a fea. They don't have a, a spirit that they would take with them somewhere after death. However, they are seemingly, at least within the physical realm, they're immortal, right? Because we know that the descendants of the first, e the first great eagle in Middle-earth, Thorondor, we know that his direct uh, kin, his sons, they are mentioned in the Silmarillion, and they're, of course, later mentioned in The Lord of the Rings. So, at least by appearance, they seem to be living immortally on Earth in the physical realm. When commenting on the eagles, Tolkien himself stated, in summary, I think it must be assumed that talking, as in when he says that he's, he's referring to the eagles because they talk, uh, talking is not necessarily the sign of the possession of a rational soul or fea. The same sort of thing may be said of Huan, which is a uh, canine character in the Silmarillion, and the eagles. They were taught language by the Valar and raised to a higher level, but they still had no fair. So the eagles, again, are direct servants of Manwe, not Maiar, not member of the angelic hierarchy, uh, although they have been raised to the status almost of, of human intelligence. And that is for the purpose of the mission that they carry on on behalf of Manway, which is guiding, protecting, helping the free peoples when needed, and reporting news back to Manway himself uh, in Valinor. So now that we went over a little bit on their nature, I'm going to talk about the named eagles and their major interventions within the story. All right, so the major named eagles, we have Thorondor, and he is essentially the, the first great eagle in Middle-earth. And it's said that his wingspan was 180 feet. So we're dealing with a very large, intelligent creature here with the ability to speak and reason, as I said. So Thorondor is the, the first great eagle. He's the, the lord and father of eagles in Middle-earth. 
It is his descendants that come to the rescue or or at least they show up, you know, at the at the battle of the Black Gate at the end of Lord of the Rings. You know, that famous scene, the eagles are coming, you know, that you've all seen in the movies. Those are the leaders of those eagles are his descendants. And he is a very prominent character in the Silmarillion that interferes on behalf of our heroes multiple times. And then you have uh, Gwaihir, which is, it doesn't specify whether or not he is Thorondor's son, but it's implied. Uh, And it states that Gwaihir is a descendant of Thorondor. We don't know if that's immediate son or... He shows up further down in his line. You know, we don't know. It just it just says descendant. But you're definitely, as the reader, made to assume that it's his direct son, especially when you consider the fact that Landreval is also grouped with them. And Landreval is said to be Gwaihir's brother. So we have an instance in the Silmarillion, which I'll kind of talk about in a second, where Gwaihir, Landreval, and Thorondor show up to kind of whisk our heroes away. And so you kind of get the implication there that it's... It's a, it's a dad and his two kids. And then you have the last named eagle of Middle-earth, which is Meneldor. And Meneldor is a, one of the eagles that was in Gwaihir's service at the end of Lord of the Rings, who shows up to scoop Sam and Frodo up off of an exploded Mount Doom. It doesn't specify whether he was a direct member of the royal family of eagles that existed at that time. Um, so we're kind of given the implication that he's just kind of like a military captain of the eagles and then another eagle that we have who is not named is the great eagle from the hobbit so in the hobbit the company is rescued by the eagles they for those of you who have seen the hobbit movies it kind of takes place at the end of the first movie but this happens in the books you know the eagles come and they rescue them and and take them up to their eyries and give them they provide them with food and then gandalf kind of has a, a discussion with the great eagle which we'll get into shortly i think that that's a great part of the book because it gives us a look not only at the eagle's nature but also their level of intelligence and ability to interact with a sentient life form so i think it's a, a it's a really important part of the books but yeah he is just referred to as the great eagle he is the lord of the eagles in this book so as the reader we're left to only assume that this is guai here right like it, it has to be guai here and i think the reason why guai here is not named in the hobbit you know it's fun like I've seen different people speculate as to why this is and I think the answer is really simple. <laughs> I think that Tolkien at the time of Lord of the Rings wrote Gwaihir in to be the Lord of the Eagles, the leader of the Eagles, and at the time of The Hobbit, Tolkien I don't think was aware that in the future, he was going to decide that Gwaihir was the Lord of the Eagles at this time. So the Great Eagle in The Hobbit is just referred to as the Great Eagle. But we also just assume that it's Gwaihir because it has to be Gwaihir. There's no one else that it could be. So that's the the last eagle, uh, not named, but 
definitely Gwai here. All right, now let's get into the major interventions of the Eagles in the storylines, in the lives of our heroes. First major intervention we have, right? Remember how I said in the Silmarillion, the Eagles were sent by Manwe, who is the king of the Valar, to Middle-earth to oversee everything, keep track of what was going on with the Noldor, who had just left Valinor. They had the Doom of Mandos placed upon them. Uh, Manwe, in his mercy, still wanted to know what was going on with the Noldor, so he sent the Eagles, led by Thorondor, to Middle-earth to monitor everything. And what they ended up doing was they made their eeries in the mountains on Thangorodrim, which was right above and overlooked Melkor's fortress of Angban. From that vantage point, they were able to look down at him and, you know, watch his movements, see who was coming in and out of his fortress, stuff like that. And at this time, Melkor didn't have the winged dragons, right? So he essentially has no air force to prevent this from taking place. Uh, So that's where they are. They can kind of oversee everything. They know what he's up to. And one of the first interventions that they make on behalf of the Noldor to try and help them in their distress was Feanor's son, Mithros. He gets captured by Melkor. And Melkor strings him up on top of one of the mountain peaks by his, he chains his uh, arm to the mountain. So Mithros essentially has to just hang there by his arm. And he hangs there for a while until Fingon, who is his cousin, goes to save him. And Fingon actually is taken there by Thorondor. Thorondor brings Fingon up to uh, retrieve Mithros from his prison that he's in. And that's, that is the first one. So he rescues Mithros, Feanor's oldest son. And at this time, Mithros had a claim to kingship over the Noldor. And he surrenders that claim to Fingon's father, Fingolfin. So, and that, and that's because of him getting rescued by Fingon. And the next great intervention comes at my favorite part of the Silmarillion. If you're a big fan of the podcast, uh, to quote Tim Dillon, if you're a friend of the show, If you're a friend of the show, uh, you have listened to episode 5.5, where I discuss Fingolfin's duel with Morgoth. You remember this took place after the Battle of Sudden Flame. Fingolfin, in his despair, went and slammed on the doors of Angban, and Morgoth came forth to fight him. And Morgoth obviously wins, but... Fingolfin scores some points, right? He gets some points on the board. He stabs him in the foot. He permanently injures him. And then when Morgoth goes to basically defile his body, Thorondor, who sees this interaction take place, intervenes because he's not going to sit back and allow Morgoth to desecrate the body of Fingolfin. So in a quick swoop, when Morgoth least expects it, he scratches Morgoth's face, scarring him again, adding to these permanent injuries that he's now suffering from this exchange. And he scoops up Fingolfin and he takes him to Gondolin, where Fingolfin's son, his second oldest, Torgon, who is ruling Gondolin, uh, erects a, an area for him to be buried. So that's the, the other intervention. And again, that's Thorondor 
permanently scars Morgoth on the face. Great stuff. Very metal. Love, love, love that part of the Silmarillion. The next intervention that we have is in the story of Baron and Luthien. For those of you who don't know, Baron and Luthien, these again are Aragorn's direct ancestors. Luthien is an elf and Baron is a man. And Baron is instructed by Luthien's father that in order to have his daughter's hand in marriage, he needs to pluck a Silmaril from Morgoth's crown and bring it back to him. So this is what Baron and Luthien set off to do together. Even though, of course, Baron doesn't want her to go, but she goes with him anyway because she loves him. And they end up inside Morgoth's throne room through a interesting story full of disguise and trickery. They end up in there and she sings and puts him to sleep. Baron plucks the Silmaril from his crown and then the two of them escape. They make this daring escape and once they get out into the uh, the plains before Angban, Thorondor kind of comes and scoops them up and rescues them from uh, Karkaroth, Morgoth's demon dog. <laughs> <laughs> I know I kind of just, uh, that's a very disrespectful and brief description that I gave of one of the most important stories personally to Tolkien himself. But for the sake of this podcast episode, we're keeping it whimsical. We're keeping it short. So that's, that's my quick summary of Baron and Luthien for you and where the Eagles intervene to kind of get them out of the last part of this situation. And again, you know, people complain about the Eagles being a presence at all. They're like background noises in all these stories and they are never ever affecting the plot in any way other than just kind of being a cleanup crew. You got to remember the main goal of the Eagles at this point is to watch because the Eagles cannot... They can't stop the the doom of Mandos that has been placed on the Noldor, right? The eagles essentially just have to be like observe and report and intervene when you can to just make the situ- make the inevitable failure a little bit more bearable for the heroes involved, right? Because the Noldor are doomed at this point. There's only so much the eagles can do to help them. This is a an operation that's going to fail eventually. That's that's the sad part of the Silmarillion is that there is so much suffering, you know, and it doesn't stop until you hit that War of Wrath point. And the next bit of interventions that we get with the Eagles is they essentially move their Eries from on top of Thangordrum to where Gondolin is, and they are weaved in and out of the fall of Gondolin's story. They are this present police force that is preventing Morgoth's orcs from finding the hidden city within this one specific mountain range in the Silmarillion. So again, that's that's kind of where they're where we're at now at this point. You know, Morgoth has won a lot of victory and controls the majority of Beleriand in this uh, part of the story. Uh, And then the next great intervention that we have is when all hope is lost and Elrond's father makes his way to go plead on behalf of both children of Iluvatar, elves and men, to the Valar. The Valar agree to help the free peoples of Middle-earth rise up and fight Morgoth in this moment of despair that they are all facing. Because at this point, Gondolin has fallen and there isn't many people left standing. 
So the eagles assemble with the armies of the west, with the armies of the Valar, and they take on Morgoth in this this one final epic battle called the War of Wrath. And they are there's a there's a great air battle. If you read it, it, it is truly. I mean, you look up some of the art on this stuff. It's thundering outside. I hope you guys can't hear that. But you look up some of the art on the War of Wrath. I mean, if you haven't seen it, Google it because it is just incredible. If you haven't read the Silmarillion, read it. You know, this is a there's few things that really in fiction compare to the epicness of how Tolkien describes the War of Wrath, right? That little, like, part of the Rings of Power show where they tried to pay homage to it um, in that first episode. I mean, that didn't even do it justice. Just picture these giant eagles with huge, massive wingspans fighting this massive air force of, of dragons with flight that Morgoth reveals like in the last moment of the War of Wrath because up until this point people hadn't known that he had dragons with wings right so yeah it's you get this epic last battle and then Elrond's father Eorindel comes in on Vingalot and slays in Kelagon the Black and it's incredible and that is another major intervention of the eagles that we have all right now post war of wrath we get into the second age right you fast forward some years later we have mentions of the eagles and they are present in numenor right we know they are present in numenor up until a certain point when the numenorians start you get this concession of kings who behave wickedly and the eagles depart from Numenor. It's like the symbolism there is like the will of Manwe, right? Because the eagles represent, they're an extension of Manwe. So it's like the goodwill of Manwe has left Numenor. But the these eagles that were living there prior to them leaving were called the witnesses of Manwe. They were essentially his presence on the island kingdom of men. And then you fast forward to... The Hobbit. Finally, we get to this interaction that the company has with the eagles in The Hobbit, where we get the conversation that Gandalf is having with, quote unquote, the great eagle, definitely Gwaihir. And they get rescued from uh, this pack of orcs and wargs, right? They get rescued and then they get brought up to the eagles' eyries. And we have these interesting interactions that take place that show that we are dealing with a race of eagles eagles that are just as smart as if not more intelligent than men and i want to read this quote here so it says that the lord of the eagles was there and he was talking with gandalf and then later we get this quote from the lord of the eagles that says when um basically they're trying to work out a deal of like how far would the eagles take the company after their rescue like how far can you take us because Right now, they are up in the Eries. The eagles have to take them down somewhere. And Gandalf is trying to see how far they can go. And it says this, that the Lord of the Eagles actually says that he doesn't want to go anywhere where men live. And he says, they would shoot at us with their great bows of you, for they would think we were after their sheep. And at other times, they would be right. No, we are glad to cheat the goblins of their sport and glad to repay our thanks to you. But we will not risk ourselves for dwarves in the southward plains. So right here we get this, we get a glimpse into what the situation is with these creatures. You know, they're not just Gandalf's pets. 
You know, they are their own race. They're their own thing. They have been on the earth for a very long time. So, you know, one of the things that is a feature in Tolkien's Legendarium, right, is that when you have these beings that are, whether they are something like Gandalf, whether they're a Maya, something that is connected to Valinor in some way, whether they be part of the hierarchy or just some other being that has been sent by Valinor, the longer that they stay in Middle-earth, the more that they can become mentally detached from what their mission and goal is, right? The the less fantastic they become. We see this with Saruman, right? He he loses his purpose. He loses his mission. And the same thing happens in a similar way, though, to a lesser extent, to Radagast, right? Radagast kind of becomes too obsessed with creatures in the earth, and he stops paying attention to what he's supposed to be doing. And to a, a much further extent, you know, we see it with even Melkor. You know, Melkor, the longer that Melkor lived apart from what his true purpose was in this physical form in Middle-earth, you know, as the Silmarillion goes on, Melkor actually comes off at certain points, more vulnerable. So I think that we get a little taste of this kind of happening in The Hobbit, that the eagles, although they are extensions of Manway themselves, they kind of, they're also at the same time doing their own thing, you know? And maybe even at times they're causing trouble for the free peoples of Middle-earth, because we get this implication here that the eagles are out, you know, picking off sheep and livestock. So it's an important thing to consider that they are very much their own thing. You know, that they are, they are not just there for the purpose of serving Gandalf or serving whatever quote unquote good people are. But yeah. And I also wanted to touch on another area that, that shows that again, not only are they doing their own thing, but they are very much human-like in the way that they behave and interact. They have their own culture. They have their own clothing. They have their own method of greeting. You know, in The Hobbit here, we get when the eagles finally drop them off, the eagles call out to the company and they say, farewell, wherever you fare, till your eeries receive you at the journey's end. And it says, that is the polite thing to say among eagles. And then Gandalf responds, May the wind under your wings bear you where the sun sails and the moon walks. And then it says, answered Gandalf, who knew the correct reply. So they have their own greetings and goodbyes. And then it also says, and so they parted. And though the Lord of the Eagles became in after days the king of all birds and wore a golden crown and his 15 chieftains golden collars. So they have their own clothes, ways of talking, their own mindset, their, their own will, their own, like I said, sentience. You know, it's, it's an important thing to know for when you make the argument of why couldn't they fly the eagles to Mordor. And in my opinion, this is the least strong argument, but still a strong argument in and of itself. You know, they're not just mindless servants. But anyway, moving on to the next intervention. After the eagles save them at the Erie, we have another intervention again at the Battle of the Five Armies, right? We have this situation where the army of elves, men, and dwarves, they've, they've kind of been backed up into this corner, and the eagles clear out a way for the it provides them with some relief at the end of the hobbit when this great battle is taking place and they come because again you know even though they are still their own thing at their core even though sometimes 
long periods of time stretch and maybe they don't do anything of significance. They know at their core that they are still representatives of Manway in Middle Earth, right? So the eagles kind of notice during the course of the events in The Hobbits that the orcs are gathering and they hate orcs. So it begins to trouble them and they see where the orcs are headed and they choose to follow them. And that's kind of how they they end up at the Battle of the Five Armies. Then we kind of get into the events of the Lord of the Rings and the War of the Ring, right? During this time, the Eagles are having constant communication with Elrond and Galadriel. They maintain a very good relationship with the elves, right? They don't like dwarves and men as much, but they like Gandalf. They like the elves. So they have that communication network going. You know, the the Eagles will keep watch over things that are going on. You know, maybe if there's too many orcs or trolls getting close to Rivendell, they'll bring a quick word to Elrond and be like, hey, you got some stuff going on over here, you know, and Elrond will go and handle that. So that's kind of what they're doing leading up to the War of the Ring. And then we have a situation where Gandalf, what we know from the Fellowship of the Ring, right, he's headed to Orthanc. He has been summoned there by Saruman. What do we know? about what's going to happen when he gets there. We know that Saruman is going to announce his betrayal of the White Council, his betrayal of the Free Peoples, and his aligning himself with the enemy. And he traps Gandalf eventually up on top of Orthanc because, of course... Gandalf does not agree. He doesn't want to join his side. But Gandalf, before he went there, before he answered Saruman's call, he had told Radagast to tell Gwaihir. If you remember Gwaihir, he is the son of Thorondor, the first lord of the eagles in Middle-earth. He told Radagast to tell Gwaihir to bring word to Orthanc if there's any updates on anything going on. That's how Gwaihir actually ended up there, because he arrived at Orthanc to bring news, and instead what he finds is Gandalf in distress, trapped at the top of the tower, imprisoned there by Saruman. And he whisks Gandalf away, and that's how we get the rescue, of course. And he eventually ends up taking Gandalf to Rohan, and we get another mention of kind of just the limits that the eagles do have, right? He says that he can only take Gandalf so far. So he brings them to a very close place. Rohan is very close to Isengard. He brings him to uh, Rohan and there Gandalf picks up a horse and he dips. So that's the other intervention that we have in the story. Again, it's a limited kind of situation. The eagles can't just like, they aren't invincible. They can't do anything. Then the next intervention that we get is the great eagles at the black gate right at the battle of moranon they show up when the situation is seems dire the army of the west is being harassed from the skies by the nazgul on their felbeasts right and the eagles join this battle because they know that it's important that they be there and they they come to provide a little bit of relief but again they're not they're not turning the tide of this battle, right? Who turns the tide? Iluvatar does, right? The U catastrophe. Golem falling into the lava, right? Destroying the ring. That's that's what turns the tide of the battle. So, yeah, that pretty much wraps up all of their interventions, except, of course, you have uh, Gwaihir, Meneldor, and Landrival showing up to scoop Frodo and Sam off the side of the mountain. And, you know, a, a tragic part of that is that there's three of them, right? You have Gandalf, who shows up, and, and he's riding one, of course, but there's three eagles there. So was one of those eagles there to save Golem? We're left to wonder that as the reader. Golem would have just made the right decision 
you know, he would have come out on the other end a hero in this story. But alas, he makes the wrong one. So yeah, there's the Eagles a little bit into their nature, their interventions. Of course, this has been my attempt at condensing a little bit of a summary for you on a podcast. Obviously, the the stories are much more in-depth and beautiful than I could have described on here, Uh, but I, I hope that you at least gleamed a little bit of knowledge from there. Now I want to step into why I wanted to do this podcast in the first place, even though, of course, the Eagles are a worthy subject to do a podcast on without even discussing the stupid question of whether or not the Fellowship should have flown them to Mordor, but guess what? folks we are going to talk about it right now i'm going to go over the reasons with you why it could not and should not have been done right now so the best way to answer this question is to respond with another question right and that question is if you're going to go to mordor right if you're going to go to mount doom to throw the ring in what must you absolutely not do on your way there anybody get spotted, right? You can't get spotted on your way there, okay? Because in Mordor, you have thousands upon thousands of orcs that will just swarm Mount Doom, right? Because in the books, it says that Sauron doesn't assume that anyone is going to try and destroy the ring. And he knows that the only way to destroy the ring is to throw it into the fires of Mount Doom, right? But he doesn't think that anyone would try to do that because it says that Sauron looks at the hearts of everyone else through his own lens. And because he can't perceive that someone would want to give up the power of the ring he doesn't even consider it as an option however once he spots someone coming in to go do that that place is going to be swarmed with like i said thousands upon thousands of orcs other arrays of beasts and monsters war machines trolls the nazgul flying in on fell beasts there's going to be an air force closing in on that location and another thing to consider is that sauron in the books is not just some giant eyeball that is stuck in one location you know he has an actual body golem saw him described him said he was missing a finger on his hand because of course Isildur cut it off but Sauron could go there himself and block the door stop anyone who he sees trying to get there so that's one thing that you have to consider right that is the main question you cannot be spotted number one so let's consider that as the premise for our arguments as we go into this One thing that you have to consider about Sauron, number one, he has a Palantir. Now, for those of you who have only seen the movies, uh, I don't think Peter Jackson did a very good job at exploring the Palantir. I mean, of course, it was a movie. I mean, it's it's easy to make criticism in, in hindsight. I mean, I love them. They're incredible films, but they don't really tell you about how important the Palantir are to the story. Saruman has one in Orthanc. We're very familiar with it. Saruman has it, Gandalf gets it, Pippin looks into it when he shouldn't, Aragorn looks into it in in the movies. Sauron also has one, and this is a palantir that he secured for himself when his forces took Minas Morgul. What becomes Minas Morgul, that fortress that the Witch King comes out of in The Return of the King, if you've seen the movies. There was a palantir there when it belonged to Gondor. Once it fell, Sauron took the palantir that was there. Now, in this Palantir, you can see very far distances. You can see things that have not happened, that 
may or may not happen. You can look into other lands. It's, it's far-sighted. If you know where to look, you can look far. And this is something that he views the world with from his tower. And Tolkien does a really good job at, if you read the books, like I, I tell everybody who's like, why didn't they just fly the eagles to Mordor? Read the books. You don't come out of the books with any inclination of, oh yeah, the eagles could have just taken them right there. No. Tolkien does a great job, a fantastic job at giving the reader this feeling of being watched the entire book, especially when you get to the actual, the fellowship moving and then breaking apart and Sam and Frodo's journey. You get this, this feeling that there is like an ever presence of shadow watching them at all times. And it's a theme that Tolkien hammers on because he wants to create this feeling that Sauron, and he is called the Eye. You know, I we make fun of the fact in the fandom that Peter Jackson just turned Sauron into a giant eyeball. But if you were going to have him represented by anything in the movies, that was actually a great thing to choose. So I really don't knock the choice. And again, I love the movies. But it was, it really was an, an accurate thing to depict him as because he was ever watchful. And his forces did refer to him as the great eye. And you feel that eye. You feel that eye when you read the books. So you have that. You have that part. You know, if the Eagles were to <laughs> mass this air raid into Mordor, that's something that Sauron could see with the Palantir, potentially. I mean, not even potentially. I think that there's a high likelihood of it. He has a vantage point with a Palantir from Berador over all of his lands. He can see everything if he just knows where to look. And I mean, the sky is a pretty clear place to look, right? And another thing, you're like, okay, maybe the eagles fly high enough over the sky that Sauron's not looking up there. Uh, that's a stupid thing I thought of when I was coming up with this. Some stupid thing that someone might say. Maybe the eagles fly high enough, like over the smoke, so high in the sky that Sauron doesn't even see it from his tower or with the Palantir. Okay, well, you also have to consider that if they were that high up, they wouldn't be able to fly into Mordor because the entire thing is covered with black fume, right? Sauron literally uses that to block out the sun. So his forces will be able to move and live freely underneath it. So the eagles wouldn't even be able to see where Oradruin is, or Mount Doom. Eagles wouldn't be able to see it if they flew over, because the smoke is so thick. And not only is it thick and you are not able to see through it, but breathing it in would be toxic. It would be a toxic fume. You know, the eagles can die. It is expressly stated that the eagles can die, right? The eagles don't like to fly over lands of men because they can die. They can be shot down. The reason why the eagles helped Gandalf in The Hobbit was because Gandalf removed an arrow from the great eagle. That's that's a story. That's, that's why the eagles felt that they owed him. So they can die, right? So if they're inhaling this fume, they're not going to be able to get through it. The fume goes up into the air and it stays there like a blanket but you can move and operate underneath it i'm sure some particles still fall down and you still breathe that in and it's not healthy but up in the air is where all the poisonous gas is so it really just acts as another wall around mordor that they're not getting through i mean that right there should be good enough but i'm gonna keep going because there's more so i mentioned sauron's eye before right his ability to see things through the palantir that eye 
starts well before it even gets to Sauron's site, right? One thing that you have to remember about, let, let's, let's speak geopolitically. At this point, the current political and battle situation on the ground is everything past the Anduin and probably maybe, I don't know, south of Lake Town. Everything past the Anduin River, which the Anduin River is the river that the Fellowship is going through. Remember when they get those boats from Rivendell? They're sh- in the movies. If you've seen the movies, they're shaped like the, the um, swans, and they're going through, and Aragorn and Boromir, behold the Argonoth. That's the Anduin River. Everything beyond the Anduin, at least eastward, is controlled by Sauron. And you feel that, and Tolkien lets you know that. Like, you know, on the other side of the river, Sauron's servants are there and they are watching, waiting everywhere. Birds, beasts, orcs, spies of all kinds, men. They're all on the other end of the river monitoring everything. They're, they're watching the skies. They're watching for people trying to cross over. And we get this. We even get an interaction of this in the books. Now, I'm going to read you this because I want to express here, people get this wrong impression that this was an easy job. Like, no, the, the Fellowship was being watched and stalked. And I think that this part of the Fellowship of the Ring here is a great example. So we get this moment, right, where it is nighttime and the Fellowship is on the Anduin. Um, picture they're coming down the river on those swan boats. And... We get this moment and it's seen through, at first through Legolas's perspective, all of a sudden they start getting attacked from the other end of the Anduin, from the other side. And it says, a dark shape like a cloud, and yet not a cloud, for it moved far more swiftly, came out of the blackness in the south and sped towards the company, blotting out all light as it approached. Soon it appeared as a great winged creature, blacker than pits in the night. Fierce voices rose up to greet it from across the water. So right here, the fellowship is being faced with a Nazgul on top of a fell beast. And Legolas actually ends up shooting it with his bow and it retreats and it lands on the other side of the Anduin. But the Fellowship have this brief interaction with a Nazgul here and that's because they they are being tracked, they are being followed, right? We feel this dark presence moving with them on their journey to the point where it actually manifests into a, a small quick skirmish. So again, this was no easy task. Sauron's eyes are everywhere, even if he's not even directly seeing it. I have another example. Now this is a little bit later. Boromir has just tried to take the ring from Frodo. And Frodo puts it on to escape from him. And then goes on top of the tower of Amonhen, which is this ruins that they happen to be by in that moment. And from atop of Amonhen, it was a watchtower and you could see all of the lands that were surrounding it. And Frodo is on top of there with the ring on trying to hide from Boromir. And he has this experience. And the way this is described is so interesting. You know, we get, I think Peter Jackson did a good job with it in the movies. But when you read the book, it's it's so gripping. It's almost like Frodo in this moment is like tripping. You know, like he just took acid or something. And he's having this experience with Sauron. And I'm going to describe it because it leads right into my argument here that they are constantly under the oppression of this shadow, this eye that is watching them the whole time. Again, no easy task. Sauron's eyes are everywhere. The need to be secret was paramount. 
taking the birds to Mordor in some epic attempt, there's no secrecy in that. You're going to get discovered by all of these eyes that are watching everywhere, whether it's Sauron's eye or it's one of his spies' eyes. I'm going to read. And suddenly he felt the eye. This is when Frodo has the ring on. There was an eye in the dark tower that did not sleep. He knew that it had become aware of his gaze. A fierce, eager will was there. It leaped towards him, almost like a finger he felt it, searching for him. Very soon it would nail him down, know just exactly where he was. Amon Law it touched. It glanced upon Tol Brandir. He threw himself from the seat, crouching, covering his head with his gray hood. He heard himself crying out, Never, never. Or was it, Verily, I come, I come to you? Question mark. Like he's being lured to Sauron in this moment. Like Sauron is trying to tell him to come to him. Like step into the light so I can see you. And it says, He could not tell. Then, as a flash from some other point of power, there came to his mind another thought. Take it off, take it off, fool, take it off. Take off the ring. The two powers strove in him for a moment perfectly balanced between their piercing points. He writhed, tormented. Suddenly, he was aware of himself again. Frodo, neither the voice nor the eye, free to choose, and with one remaining instant in which to do so. He took the ring off his finger. So we get a moment there where Sauron, who is clearly searching everywhere from the top of Barad-dûr, using, if he can, the Palantir to gaze out into the world. And remember, Sauron occupies both the spiritual and physical realms. So he's in both and he's stronger in the spiritual realm, right? Because that's where his home is. That's where he belongs. So he has access to people who put the ring on. I mean, he's connected with it too. He shares that connection with the one ring. And Sauron in this moment can feel Frodo. And if Frodo makes a wrong move, Sauron can see him wherever he is on the map. Sauron is about to discover his location because Sauron has an ability to gaze out into the world. He just needs to know where to look. And he fails in this moment to gain control of Frodo. But again, this whole passage, and it's great. You got to read the whole thing. That was that was just a little piece of it. It's so interesting to read about the things that he sees in this moment. Again, this goes with the running theme of constantly being watched. Sauron is scouring Middle-earth looking for them. And they will be very easily discovered if someone makes one wrong move. If someone is too loud. If someone isn't secret enough. You think that's it? Oh, I got more. I got more. So now I'm going to go back, right? I'm going to go back to the Council of Elrond, where this whole conspiracy gets hatched, where the whole plan starts to unfold. And I, I want to read you this finishing quote from Elrond what he leaves Frodo with. Because I think this is one of the strongest arguments right here for the need for secrecy. You can't make one mistake. Elrond says this, I can foresee very little of your road and how your task is to be achieved. I do not know. The shadow has crept now to the feet of the mountains. And he's talking about the Misty Mountains. The shadow has crept now to the Misty Mountains. And draws nigh even to the borders of the Grey Flood. And under the shadow, all is dark to me. So again, we have Elrond that is, 
he's speaking on this it's it's basically like the hand of Sauron stretches out past the borders of Mordor and creates this vast area of just that's just covered in shadow that eagles would have to fly through somehow even though Sauron has knowledge of everything that happens under his shadow and then he says I will choose you companions to go with you as far as they will or fortune allows the number must be few since your hope is in speed and secrecy had i a host of elves in armor of the elder days it would avail little save to arouse the power of mordor what's up haters fly the eagles through that no all right l- l- let me explain that so elrond is saying here had i a whole army of elves that were reminiscent of the days of the Silmarillion. You know, the elven armies in the Silmarillion were crazy. They had crazy armor. They had power. They were more than what the elves were in the Third Age. You know, the elves of the Third Age are less fantastic, less impressive, less in touch with, if you want to call it magic, fine, call it magic. But they they have less power. Had I a host of elves in armor of the Elder Days, he says, it would avail little. Oh, avail, that's this help. It would help you little. Save to arouse the power of Mordor. So he's saying, like, even if we went there with a crazy impressive army, like the stuff that we had in the first age, it would avail little. Save to arouse the massive power that is in Mordor. So take that logic and apply it to a bunch of giant birds flying in the sky, trying to somehow make it to Mount Doom. All that's going to do is arouse the power of Mordor. And once the eagles got to the volcano, they'd be waiting for them there at the door. If they even make it, which they wouldn't, that's what would be there waiting for them. And honestly, the only reason he even gives him nine companions is in the next line. The company of the ring shall be nine, and the nine walkers shall be set against the nine riders that are evil. With you and your faithful servant, Gandalf will go, for this shall be his great task, and maybe the end of his labors. So he sends nine to counteract the Nazgul that are on the ground searching desperately for them right? Because the Nazgul are the most dangerous at this point. The Nazgul are the most intelligent and the most lethal weapons in Sauron's service. They're smart. You know, they're not dumb. I feel like in the movies they get depicted as a little bit silly until you get to Return of the King because the Witch King is pretty epic. But, you know, the only reason why there's nine is so that there will be nine people there to counteract the nine riders that are after them. You know, they could have went with less number. The whole point was secrecy and speed. Elrond lays it out right there. If they would have taken the eagles to Mordor, honestly, they wouldn't have made it past the Anduin River. And for those of you who need a reference, the Anduin River is where, in the Fellowship of the Ring, like I said before, they're going down the river and they see the two giant statues. They probably wouldn't have even made it to there. Like, I don't want to hear about it anymore. It's over. I just debunked it. You heard my strong arguments. And look, you think I'm done? I have more, okay? Like I said, let's go back to the eagle's nature. They are a strong, proud race that can be corrupted. If Gandalf can be tempted by the ring, so can the eagles. That's a fact. So who's to say that Frodo doesn't jump on one of the eagles and then halfway through the trip, if they don't get shot down, the eagles is like, 
I kind of want to wear the ring. And you have that to worry about. And then to finalize it all, another honorable mention argument, the Eagles are, are they don't feel like doing this. They aren't in the service of Elron. They do whatever they want. And I'm sure they don't want to go flying over Mordor unless it's cleaned out. Period. All right, that's it. I'm ending it off. I've given you plenty. Uh, wow. I, and I'm actually surprised. Right now, I'll probably edit it down. But we're at the hour mark. So there you go. Tell your friends. Next time some wise guy steps up to you and asks about flying the Eagles to Mordor, show him this podcast. Thanks for listening.